Hello, and welcome back to The Meaning Podcast, an ongoing exploration of how spiritual significance emerges from the life and the work of Plymouth Congregational Church of Minneapolis. I'm your host, Chris Bonhoff. Like many people, Plymouth member Kareem Murphy kept his distance from organized religion in his 20s. Then, in the midst of a successful career as an equity partner at a Washington, D.C. lobbying firm, he found the right moment to re-engage with his spirituality. Now, as the Director of Intergovernmental Affairs for Hennepin County, Kareem integrates his spiritual self into all aspects of his life. We talked about his religious history and about the opportunities that have presented themselves to him as a direct result of his strongly held spiritual ethics. I was baptized, christened, um, and even given a scholarship send away at Union Baptist Church on Main Street in Hartford, Connecticut. This was a, uh, a black Baptist, I think it's formerly affiliated with National Baptist um, Convention. Um, it is a, uh, in many ways, a typical black Northeastern Baptist congregation. Um, there was a, in the community, there was a row of, uh, Main Street was littered with churches in that area. And they ran the gamut of black faith life experience from um, uh, independent Pentecostal up to uh, my congregation. And it was an AME congregation that was down the street. And if you look at the diversity within black uh, life in, in 19th century, or I should say 20th century Hartford, um, those churches really represented those slices. Um, it skewed, uh, middle class, very middle class. So this was, my congregation was, uh, for the most part, um, uh, black professionals. Uh, my mother was a music teacher. She was also the music, she was the music minister there probably more often than not um, through the years. Uh, so um, we had a strong connection with uh, worship arts just because of her role there. The uh, sanctuaries, the wood is painted white, but um, it's architecturally very similar in style. Um, and so there's just kind of the physical space makes me feel connected in many ways. The design of the pipe organs, um, just uh, the layout, the, the style of pew, um, very, very, very similar. But it's a predominantly white congregation here, and that was a predominantly black congregation I was raised in in Hartford. So um, there was that. My mother was, uh, where family was from North Carolina, so it was a small town where the, my family kind of founded this this small church. Uh, Mount Ebrew ba Missionary Baptist, is now Missionary Baptist Church, which is Mount Ebrew Baptist Church in Roper, North Carolina. Um, so I had a kind of two churches of origins, um, uh, very similar, uh, pretty much a difference in scale. One is, you know, uh, Upper South, the other's Northeastern. And so I, that was me up until I went to college and then really had no, f I went to chapel and a couple of other um, places when I was an undergraduate at Howard University in Washington, DC, but really had no meaningful faith life, I think, or active faith life in my twenties. Yeah. If friends invited me, I'd go, but this wasn't like I had a place that I called home. And so it wasn't until um, uh, my mid thirties that I decided to go back to church. And that was when I got connected with Metropolitan Community Churches there in Washington. One thing I never heard in any of the churches I grew up in were anti-gay sermons. Um, I, I was uh, privileged and blessed in that regard. That is uh, untrue for people in my social circle. Um, and, you know, uh, kind of Gen X 
gay black men. It's, it's far more common to have grown up with anti-gay sermons. I heard it as a child as just do the right and just thing and the rest of it is, is fine. Like you can, you can dress plainly and, and speak properly and don't drink and don't curse and do everything. Um, but there was never a, you must do that in order to be a good person and in order to get into heaven. That just the, the construct of the messages didn't kind of trend in that direction. Yeah. So it was a very, honestly, open way I think I looked at. I was raised with a very um, open way of looking at faith and church life. Yeah, it's very healthy, I think. Um, and, then, and then you became an adult. Then I became an adult. And then, <laughs> it, then there were more complicated questions about how you're going to live your life um, is usually Very the much way so. it goes. Yeah, um, you know, I had, um, I was, I, I, beca I became a lobbyist. So I was a Washington, D.C. lobbyist. And um, after a lot of hard work and focus, a few years at my firm, I became a partner. So I was an equity owner in a Washington, D.C. lobbying firm. And that is a very particular lifestyle. Um, and um, it is uh, full of luxury and status and access um, and uh, very easy to wrap uh, a, a whole web of identities around that. What it does not easily lend itself to is, um, for me, an active faith life. And so it was nice while it lasted, um, but I wound up searching for meaning in objects instead of experiences in people. And when that didn't fulfill me, that was when church became an option. Again, um, I had a therapist uh, tell me in my late 20s that I faith was something that was meaningful for me growing up and I needed to figure out what that could mean for me as an adult. And I blew it off and thought it was like, okay, well, you, you've given me a lot of good advice. You can't score a hundred on every test. This is the, <laughs> um, and little, but it was always something that was a seed planted in my head. And that's the reason why, you know, if somebody invited me to church or invited me and my husband to church, we would go. Um, but walking back to church felt good and right. And I felt like I had meaning and direction, um, and purpose, um, I began to see the world differently um, and differently in ways that felt good and right and just. One thing that happened actually at my job, um, the firm had a financial downturn and we had to let people go. And the first thing out of my, the, for the first time ever, you know, I'd had challenges before, but the first time ever, I said, I need to go talk to my pastor just mm -hmm. about this. And I like don't know how to think about this, it was what was for me, I was looking at people and saying, what's the just thing to do here? Is this is this about my sacrifice? Do like how do I stand in this space faced with this difficult decision? And um, it was the most amazing thing. It was just very simple advice he gave me. Um, and uh, what was it? Well, it was two pieces. It was. Um, Sometimes these type of difficult choices need to be made so that um, people can be saved. Um, in other words, it was the, if you don't 
do the difficult thing, the whole ship may come down and everybody may lose. Mm-hmm. Um, and if there's a way to be caring and compassionate and resourceful for those who are harmed by the decision, if you have to like, if you have to fire people, do everything you can to take care of them. Um, and make sure that this doesn't have to happen again. Mm. Um, and so it was basically, it was find the right balance to care for the entire community, knowing that it's going to impact people differently. Yeah. That was, that was the advice. It was, it was, everybody deserves care. This is just, everyone is created in the image of God to reflect the image of God. And they deserve everything that's possible that this community, that job, the workplace can offer. And it was transformative. Uh, so I found a way to integrate um, uh, and kind of break down silos between my faith life and my work life. Yeah, and that really beautiful. was the just the the separation of that was what kind of aided me and was one of those driving forces that got me back in the church. So at a certain point in your life, it was maybe more constructive as you were figuring out what you were doing in the world to 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 separate those two. And then integrating them was also like an important and kind of formative kind of step is what I'm hearing you say. In a lot of ways. Yes. Yeah. I, you know, I, while I didn't hear anti-gay sermons in the two congregations I was associated with um, as a child, it was very clear that was an aspect of most church life. Mm -hmm. Um, And so... You know, I go to college, I come out, I have this phenomenal relationship. And, you know, what I wasn't going to do was go to a church that was homophobic, even yeah. mildly homophobic or just occasionally homophobic. It was you were either going to. And this is the 90s. This was before, you know, there was this identity around being open and affirming. I mm-hmm. say identity, not necessarily practiced. Not everybody mm-hmm. who claims to be <laughs> wrapped in the identity practices open and affirming. Um, um worship and community life. Um, and so as a young out gay man in a relationship, I didn't see church as a place. It wasn't that necessarily, you know, there, there could have been a role that church played for me, but the, the loud, the loudness of the homophobia was one of those things like, why I don't need church. Like mm-hmm. I can find community and spiritual experiences elsewhere. Right. Like the cost of needing to put a piece of yourself down at the door was too high a price to pay. Is that true? Well, what I would say was I was unwilling to put a piece of myself down. It wasn't yeah. even about a cost. It was either, either either you accept me or you don't. Yeah. I mean, that was the ultimatum I made with my family. They fully embraced me. There were very few challenges there. Um, and so I was, I, I've been fortunate, like I've never... As, as I came into myself, as I came into my adulthood, I was fortunate to be in places where I did not have to compromise. I had, and I was, and because I didn't have to, I did not. And that included church. a member of the Metropolitan Community Church of Washington, D.C. It's part of the, this larger denomination. Um, it's the D.C. Church. We had a bunch of lobbyists that were in the congregation. Not a bunch, there were just there were a good number of us. 
And um, at the time, Dwayne was working on his Masters of Divinity. Um, and he's also the policy director, domestic policy director for the Episcopal Church. Bishop Shorey had been appointed to President Obama's uh, faith council. And Dwayne hatched a plan. That, first of all, this was a, a group of lobbyists. We said, you know, the moderator had just, um, um, she's the equivalent of a, like a presiding bishop. Um, she had just been um, uh, affirmed just about a year or two into her first term. And, you know, we said like, hey, we're a bunch of like lobbyists. Let's have a queer faith um, advocacy group that we can do here in Washington. Like we'll just be a volunteer team. Um, now, mind you, it's like me, a partner in a firm. You got Dwayne doing the Episcopal Church work. Another guy ran the UN AIDS Washington office. Like, we're not just kind of like ragtag groups of people. We were, no. you know, accomplished professionals, yeah. all having a faith experience. And we kept saying, what else can we do? What's the next big thing to really advance this? What opportunities do we have with President Obama in office? So we did it, um, um, started really changing. And there were LGBT people of faith that were on some of the larger denominations staffs but because you know mcc's the big queer christian group we don't have to have any internal conversations about how far we can go in lgbt issues this is go we can go as far as we want they love that we were getting into this foray because you know they wanted to push boundaries you had constituencies within their denominations that wanted to push boundaries organizationally, they weren't there yet. So we got to be the tip of the spear mm. in a lot of ways. Just faith folk who just wanted to go to church and wound up being able to do this. And um, Dwayne put together a plan, and the short version of it all is that um, Reverend Elder, Dr. Nancy Wilson, who was moderator, previous moderator of Metropolitan Community Churches, um, Dwayne orchestrated a plan that got her on the uh, President Obama's faith council. So this was... Um, the head of communion for a queer Christian church sitting on this larger advisory council because, and uh, these gay lobbyists that happened to be a member of this faith movement got to, got to hatch a plan and be the right people at the right time um, to really steer conversations in um, really productive federal public policy discussions in a very um, profound and impactful way. Yeah. And that's the ultimate integration the ultimate integration of saying there's no differentiation between what I do professionally and how I live my faith life. It is fully immersing and integrating all of those. That's, 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 um, and that taught me that that was possible. I'm the director of governmental relate intergovernmental relations for Hennepin County. So this is, and the way I kind of explain it to people, Hennepin, it's not just the biggest county in Minnesota. If you work the map, we're the largest county between Cook County, Chicago, and uh, I believe it's either Sacramento County or Alameda County in California. It's a big deal to have, to work in a prominent way for uh, for the county around uh, Minneapolis, largest county in Minnesota. I was recruited for the position because of all that I br brought to my life in Washington, D.C. There were, uh, uh, my predecessor and a couple of county commissioners knew me through some of the, my lobbying work. Um, and uh, they knew my husband was, I was moving here, I explained to them, I'm moving here so my husband can pastor 
uh, All God's Children Metropolitan Community Church there in Minneapolis. And um, so they saw he's moving here. It's a family move because of church. And he knows how to do integrate. Kareem knows how to do integrated work. And so I think the authenticity I had in explaining the, not just the what I can do, but the why I do it, drew people in. And um, I think there's the opportunity for me, professionally, personally, spiritually, that integration led to led to success and opportunities in all of these aspects and i you know and i i I acknowledge the privilege that it comes with it's the privilege of my education the privilege of my career the privilege of it being in washington one thing i do more now in my job that it wasn't necessarily designed to do is community engagement and it is because it's not just like oh his husband pastors a church they understand how important the community is to the how, the why, and the what of what I do in government affairs and lobbying. And it is it is communities to be among a series of centers uh, for the work. Um, and that's a that is a faith-based value. It, it is it is it is a, a broadening of this isn't faith as proselytizing through government. This is faith as a way to understand and connect a government that needs far more connection with community to be healthy and functional. Um, And so uh, that integration is, I think, it's, it's key to my work. It was important for my professional success. And it's ultimately one of the things I use to discern, like, how good Plymouth is for me. At any point in time, it is what are these commitments we have to this community and how open are we as a church community to expanding what we do in public life at every chance we get to see where we can do more. How does your spiritual self show up in the various spaces in your life? Do your spiritual values apply in your professional setting? Or is that integration challenging? And does your spiritual community hold its own values as it acts in the world? Thanks to Kareem Murphy for your engagement with the Plymouth community. And thanks to Jimmy Hulse for our theme and to Max Brunel for additional music. And thank you for listening. If you find this podcast meaningful, please consider sharing, liking, and reviewing us. It'll help us expand the conversation. Meaning is a production of Plymouth Congregational Church of Minneapolis.